This class is Profiles from Acts, Men and Women Who Shaped the Early Church. Before we begin to uh, listen and to learn to God's Holy Spirit, let's pray. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, I ask you to teach this lesson because I don't know what to do with this scripture. Let your Holy Spirit teach us and remind us of all that Jesus taught us, both in the specific and in the principal, that we might receive life lessons from this text, which is so difficult, that we might be empowered to walk in peace and in love with one another before you. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. This morning's scripture has to do with Ananias and Sapphira. You know the scripture? Acts 5. Context. Holy Spirit has fallen with power on the gathered apostles and uh, other believers. Tongues of flame dancing about their heads, speaking in foreign languages that all might understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. A way of saying that there is nothing that will stop the gospel from being shared around the world, not even language. Hearts are changed, sensitivities are increased, there is a new behavior as the Holy Spirit moves among the gathered community of faith. They're meeting together every day to eat, they are gathering together daily for expositions of scripture and for the working of mighty miracles at the hands of the apostles. There is a spontaneous spirit of generosity and sacrifice as those members of the earliest church sell off possessions and give to the gathered community so that none would be in need. A man named Joseph from Cyprus comes. He has sold a field. He gives all of the proceeds from that sale to this early church with the blessings of the apostles. That's the end of Acts 4. The beginning of Acts 5, there is a couple in this community, Ananias the man, Sapphira the woman, and they also have property which they sell and they lay the proceeds at the feet of the apostles. Now we do not know how much time, if any, there was between Acts 4 and Acts 5. We do not know if Joseph of Cyprus, nicknamed Barnabas, son of encouragement by the apostles, we don't know if there's any break between Barnabas bringing his proceeds and Ananias and Sapphira bringing their proceeds. If they, were almost, if they were one right after the other, the drama of this story increases even more. But nonetheless, they sell property, and they lay it at the apostles' feet, and Simon Peter, apparently under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says to Ananias, who is by himself at first, is this what you sold the property for? Yes, I sold the property for this. Are you sure this is what you sold the property for? I am sure. Simon Peter says, you have 
determined in your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit, the men who will bury you are coming now to gather you, and he drops dead. Sometime later, perhaps hours, Sapphira, the wife, comes in. Peter says, is this what you sold the property for? She says, yes. Peter says, are you sure? She says, yes. Peter says, those who have buried your husband come now to take you out. And she drops dead. And I've never done church like that. Sometimes I wished I could have. I have thought sometimes that a few good funerals would be the only thing some churches need to move forward. But the fact is, this scripture bothers me. I've never been at peace with this scripture. I want to kind of dive back into what our kids are doing, wearing the WWJD bracelets. You know, what would Jesus have done with Ananias? What would Jesus have done with Sapphira? Would he have killed them? I can imagine that Simon Peter, maybe being a little more connected to the mind and heart of Christ in this matter, might have whispered in Ananias' ear, Ananias, let's you and I just have a private talk. Let's go out in the parking lot and let's chat a few minutes outside where Peter could confront Ananias privately with this lying to the Holy Spirit and saying he had gave so much money or received so much money in the sale and, and given all of it, but when in truth he did not. I just don't know what to do with this scripture. It doesn't sound like my Jesus. And the only way and I can come to any peace with it is this. The Holy Spirit had just fallen. There is this mass movement to Christ as the gospel is being preached in other tongues. There are at least 5,000 disciples now gathering and they're meeting daily. And there are what I would call sign miracles being performed in order to vindicate, authenticate, justify what is happening in the early church. People are being healed. People are coming great distances for salvation. Demons are being cast out. This is a first flow of the Holy Spirit being released in this world, the kingdom of God is breaking in spiritually. And suddenly, there is this threat to all of this. In the midst of people being raised from the dead, in the midst of people being healed, lame walking, sightseeing, in the midst of preaching the gospel in foreign languages you've never studied, in the midst of all of these thousands of people coming in to Jerusalem, there is this threat. And I think this is such a moment in world history 
and church history. Now, to not respond to what seems to be a deliberate challenge and threat to what is happening here would be just as wrong as the first sin. There are those times in life when to do nothing is a sin unto itself. Furthermore, with all these signs and wonders breaking out around this gathered community of faith, this seems to be an exceptional time, separate from all other times, in which God is speaking and he is affirming and he is confirming and he is illustrating in non-negotiable, undebatable ways that he is in this. And peace in the community at any price would not be peace. Have you ever found yourself in one of those moments where if you just don't speak, it's a sin? When if you just don't act, it is a sin. When you do not take a stand and say like Martin Luther, here by the grace of God I stand. And this is who I am and this is who we are. It is a sin. And do you think that maybe there are moments in heavenly time like that too when God himself must act because of who he is in a moment of great potential and a moment of great danger. The pastoral side of me wants to get Ananias and Sapphira out of there and deal with this privately and not to embarrass them and not cause any ripples in church. But these are extraordinary times. Extraordinary times require extraordinary decisions and extraordinary actions. And knowing what we now know 2,000 years later, there is a spiritual side to that Newtonian principle that for every action there is an equal, equal and opposite reaction. You know, remember that Newtonian principle? It's what makes airplanes fly. Jet engine blows that way and the plane goes that way. There is a spiritual application of that principle. For every action of the Holy Spirit, there is an opposite reaction of the unholy spirit. And Satan and powers of darkness will not let this new church go unchallenged. Matthew 16, Jesus and his disciples are at Caesarea Philippi. Jesus asked them, who do men say that I am? They answer, some say that you are one of the prophets of old. Some say that you are Elijah. Some say that you are John the Baptist, raised from the dead. He says, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answers, St. Simon Peter in the story, Ananias Sapphira. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. 
Jesus replies to Simon Peter, Blessed are you, Simon Barjono, for flesh and blood has not revealed this unto you, but your Father who is in heaven. All right. Simon Peter has just given the first Holy Spirit-inspired profession of faith recorded in Scripture, in world history. And Jesus says to him, And I say to you, you are Petros, big rock, and on this Petra, little rock, I will build my church. What's the next thing? And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now, that's interesting. Why didn't Jesus say, on this rock of Petrine faith, I will build my church and it will be glorious? Why didn't he say, I will build my church and it will be universal? Why didn't he say, I will build my church and it will stand for all eternity? Why didn't he say, I will build my church and all men and women of every nation and, and language and socioeconomic class will come to it? Why didn't he say something like that? Instead he said, on this rock, I will build my church. And I guess what came next came next because it was the most important thing Peter and the disciples needed to hear because it is a part of the reality of the kingdom of God breaking into this world. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And the assumption behind that is that the gates of hell are coming. That whole imagery, the gates of hell, it's the imagery of a, of a wall city and the walls had gates in them, and you flung open the gates and the soldiers came out. Jesus knew that what was happening here would be challenged. And that's the very first commentary Jesus Christ gave on his church. Hell's coming. I'm starting it right here in this matter, in this burst of Peter's faith, and hell is coming, but the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now, fast forward, Simon Peter again, Ananias, Sapphira, oh, that's just a little sin. That's like cheating on your taxes, you know, cheat on your tithe a little bit. For all that I love, my understanding about Jesus. There's no one condemn you, no one, Lord, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. That's, that's how I see my Lord in a time like this. I forgive you, don't do it again. He's not there anymore. And there is a new age and there's a new something that's being poured out the Holy Spirit of God itself being poured out, and hell is coming. And so this reaction of the Holy Spirit, I think, was a sign miracle in the earliest days of the church when it was first made public and vulnerable by that public expo exposure to attack by Satan and his dark kingdom that that moment was ordained to make a point.
Now, <clears throat> you say, well, that's a pretty big cost to Ananias and Sapphira to have a point made. Well, now, in fairness to Peter, he gave them a chance to retract. In, fa in fairness, he did. He gave them a chance to change their story. There are other cases in the scripture in which human suffering is ordained to make a point. The disciples asked Jesus about a blind man. Lord, who sinned? This man's parents or this man that he was born blind? Who's responsible for this blindness? The parents or him? And Jesus said, neither. He was born blind that God might be glorified. In other words, to make a point. There was a time over in Gadarene on the far side of the Sea of Galilee in which uh, some hog farmers lost all their incomes because their pigs drowned themselves in the sea to make a point. There was a rich young ruler, had a lot of stuff. Jesus said, you lack one thing, go sell everything you had, give to the poor, make a point. See what I'm saying? See what I'm at least hypothesizing? Because I will tell you, this scripture has always bothered me. But there are those times in which the church has to rise up against hell because hell is coming. Did any of you know Jack Matthews, who was a member of this church? Some of you? Uh, Jack and Margaret? I married Jack and Margaret. Jack was one of my deacons of the church that I pastored in North Charleston. And they, they moved up here, found this church, they loved it here. But Jack and I were good friends, and, and Jack had a story that he told me several times, so I, I know it must have really impacted him about a case where apparently the Spirit of God raised up in similar fashion, not just to make a point, but to solve a problem. Jack said that when he was young, he was a member of a small Baptist church that had uh, six deacons, and every one of them were out to get the pastor. The whole church knew it. The whole church knew what they were doing, making life miserable for this man. Jack said in one year, five of them were dead. <laughs> and Jack said... Pastor, I'm never coming against you. <laughs> uh, it's, you know, that's kind of hard just to pass off as coincident, isn't it? Five in one year. That sounds more like God incident than it does coincident. So this, this, this whole thing about being loving... And, and, and personal and private and pastoral and kind has not been cast out. It's still the norm, don't you think? I would love to have seen Peter just take this couple outside and have a good talk with them and come back in and get it right. But there are times which are so unusual and so important and so special that the response of God is not going to be mediocre. And I have a story like this. Once upon a time, years ago, 
many, many miles from here, <clears throat> I pastored a church in which there was a couple determined to create as much havoc in that congregation as they possibly could. I don't know whether something was broken in personality or just the devil had them. But they were tearing up that church and me with it. Their behavior was very overt and visible to the entire congregation. So much to a point that you could see a shift in the congregation in terms of its peacefulness and its unity. Finally, the deacons had enough of it, and they asked me to meet with them, and they said, Pastor, we have got to do something about this. This is, we can't let this go on any longer. And, you know, old softy me, I said, look, look give, it, give it a little while longer, okay? A little, maybe I can help. Maybe we can work this out. Give it a little while longer. Nine months went by, and they came back to me and said, we can't wait any longer. We have got to deal with this. Man and his wife, we have got to deal with them. They are upsetting the entire church. I said, okay, it's yours. Over the next month, that body of deacons met for over 100 total hours working on this issue. They followed scriptural guidelines to the letter First thing they did was have a delegate, a representative from the deacon body, go to this man and woman's house and lay out the concerns that the church was having about what they were doing. <clears throat> and it was reported that they had allegedly said, no, we're not going to stop what we're doing. Just boldly said, we're not going to stop. So the next step in scripture is you, you go again and you take witnesses, right? So they sent a delegation this time of several to the house and spoke with this man and his wife and actually asked them to consider finding another place to worship. And it was reported that the couple allegedly said, we're not going anywhere. If you want our membership, you're going to have to take it. Well, you know, that's kind of like waving a red flag in the face of a bull, the Baptist deacon. <laughs> That's what they did. They went back, and they determined to remove this couple from the church, church discipline. They uh, announced a called business meeting of the church one Sunday evening. Almost 400 people showed up for that meeting. Shows you what a... a, a Tremendous problem it had become. And the letter announcing the meeting stated, you know, this was about church discipline and it involved so-and-so. So about 400 people showed up on that Sunday night. They signed in as members of the church. They were given a, an anonymous ballot. Deacons came in, filled up the front rows. I sat all the way over, as far as I could, away from it, front row. Deacons made a very carefully researched, prepared presentation, and incidentally, they hired a lawyer who was there just to protect them, protect the church. Then there was a time for open mic. 
individuals could come forward and, and speak, and that went on for quite a while, and it was pro and con. Then uh, after everyone had a chance to participate, uh, there was the call for the vote. Secret ballots were um, not signed, they were just indicated. You know, you write on whether to expel this couple from the church or not to expel. Ballots were collected, the little counting committee from the deacons went back to another room, the, the church just sat quietly and prayed. Finally, the little counting committee came back in, handed the results to the chairman of the deacons, he stepped to the pulpit, and he announced that by approximately a 90% vote by secret ballot, this couple had been expelled from the church. What happened next, I will never, ever forget. In one accord, almost as if directed by some choir director, the church stood up and started singing. How great thou art, amazing grace, great hymns of celebration and praise, and you could feel a palpable darkness lift off of that church. This had almost destroyed me because a lot of this was directed at me. There was a mad rush to that corner where I was sitting. And there were people gathered around me five and six deep waiting to get to me. I felt like I was on the bottom of, of some athletic team celebration on the field after he had won a national championship. And I was, and people were just piling on, piling on, and backslapping, and hugs, and kisses, and tears, and, and affirmations. And I, I had told the deacon something God had told me. He told me not to open my mouth in all of this. So I had said to the deacons, whatever format this takes, I will not speak. I will not answer any of these charges. I will not speak a word. This greatly concerned them. They felt like I needed to defend myself and defend the church. No, it won't do it. And the Lord had also said to me, you will be justified and revered. And at that moment where I was on the bottom of the pile and all these hands were all over me and tears streaming down my face, I saw the loving hand of God in the justice of God. Sometimes justice is loving. Sometimes tough love is not just for the perpetuator of some evil, but it's for the people being perpetuated against. It's a two-way street. character and the personality of that church radically changed after that meeting. And they meant it. They meant it. They changed all the exterior locks on the doors all the way around. Because there had been mischief in the property that had been, some had theorized were connected with this couple. Now, to stand on the outside of that experience and look in one might say, that seemed a little harsh. Don't you think maybe the church had a little bit of overkill? No. 
I was there, and I can tell you, it was killing me. And it was killing the church in a lot of ways. And in spite of second chances to make it right, there was this persistence to do harm to God's church. It was not overkill. Now back to Ananias and Sapphira. My own style would be inclined to have handled that in a little different way. But that's why we have a Holy Spirit. Because the mind of man does not perceive or comprehend all the things of God. And whether it was a sign miracle or whether it was a reaction, a statement sent to hell itself, Satan, we're not putting up with this. Or God himself saying, I'm not putting up with this. The gates of hell will not prevail against Christ's church. And sometimes that means tough love. Sometimes that means sitting down and shutting up and let the Holy Spirit do its work. If my own experience had been handled exactly the way I wanted it handled, we'd still be in that mess over there. Because I'm a softy. So what lesson is there here for us today? God is cruel. God is ruthless. God is insensitive. Or should we say, God is loving. And sometimes, love requires Bold, decisive, immediate action in defense of itself. There had to be a reason why Paul gave the Corinthian church such detailed outlines in terms of how to handle circumstances such as these. Unfortunately, they're not out of date. Because as long as we claim to be who we are and strive to be who we are, the gates of hell will challenge every move. So, the Holy Spirit, whom we invited into our hearts and lives again this morning in the most wonderful, peaceful way, has come to us with the ultimate goal of peace and unity among the fellowship and between heaven and earth and God and man. But peace at all cost is not peace. And that's all I know to do with Ananias and Sapphira. God bless.